everyone, and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence Podcast. My name is Don Shelby. My co-host today is Joseph Robertson, founder of Geoversive, the director of Citizens Climate International, and the lead strategist for the Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative. Myra Jackson, who is usually with us, is still working right now on the Global Freshwaters Summit. She'll join us next month. Our guest today is Dr. Edward Maybach a distinguished professor at George Mason University in communication science, strategic communication, and social marketing to address climate change and related public health challenges. His research, funded by NASA, the National Science Foundation, and private foundations, and focuses on public understanding of climate change, the psychology underlying public engagement, and, important to me, the cultivation of local TV meteorologists and journalists as effective climate educators. Dr. Maybach, welcome to Earth Intelligence. Oh, thank you, Don. Great to be with you. Now, I'm going to dispense, Ed, with uh, calling you doctor, if you don't mind, because we've known each other for quite a while. And in full disclosure, I serve in an advisory capacity for Climate Matters in the newsroom, which I am uh, in love with. And thank you for the honor of allowing me to be a part of that. Oh, my pleasure. We couldn't have done it without you. We want to go into detail, first of all, about what you've been learning, along with Yale University's Climate Communications Program, about changing attitudes on climate change and some recent good news that the data are showing. But first, let me look at your work on getting local weather reporters and dayside journalists to understand climate change and enhance their reporting in weather casts and thus inform the public. It's uh, often shown by polling that while a lot of people distrust journalists generally, they like the journalists in their hometown. The same being true of weathercasters. Our research used to show that as many as 40% of a newscast audience is tuning in just to get the weather. And it may be the only scientist that they come in contact with in their lifetime. So their local folks are trusted voices, and you parlayed that into something special. Right. Well, we from one of the very first surveys that Tony Lizeritz at Yale and I conducted, we call these surveys the Climate Change in the American Mind surveys. Um, in one of the first surveys, we ask our respondents how much they trust different types of people and different specific individuals as sources of information about global warming. And what we found, not surprisingly, is that uh, scientists were the most trusted. But um, as you sort of implied, Don, most members of the public don't know a scientist. So the fact that they are trusted is is nice, um, but it's not necessarily practical. The second most trusted were friends and family, which is also nice and not surprising in the least, because the more we know people, the more we come to, to like and trust them. Um, but the fact that TV weathercasters were the third most trusted source, we thought that was really interesting. And in fact, one of the local weathercasters in, in my market, in, in the Washington, D.C. area, he saw this within a couple of days after we published the finding, and he called me up and said, Ed, this is really interesting that I that my viewers would consider me a trusted source of information about global warming. 
And his name is Joe Witte. And Joe proceeded to sort of break down for me the other really important qualities that weathercasters have. They've got extraordinary access to the public. Um, they are extremely good science communicators. It's how they got their job and it's how they progress in their job. So they're trusted. They've got access. They've got the skills. Um, and Joe asked, essentially said, you really ought to, to make a study of this, see whether or not my colleagues um, around the country would be willing to fill, to rise to this occasion, this role that, that you've identified for us in your research. And we've been doing that ever since and uh, happy to tell you all about it. But the, the, short, uh, the, the short version of the story is that they're an interesting group of men and women. Ten years ago, when I first surveyed them to find out to what degree would they be interested in educating their viewers about the changing climate in their community as opposed to the changing climate around the world? Um, what we found is that about half of them weren't yet even on board with the science. Half of them were either skeptical of climate change at all or skeptical that our changing climate was of human cause. The other half, however, said who who were on board who understood it, that our climate is changing and due to human activities the interesting thing about that half is they all said they would love to educate their viewers about the local impacts of climate change but none of them were at that time <laughs> and and of the tiny handful that were doing so in any way um none of them were doing so on air so we we built this program called climate matters to to help that half of the broadcast meteorology community in America who wanted to become local climate reporters, we built the resources that they told us in our survey they would need to be able to perform this role. And that was 10 years ago that we learned that half of the weathercasters said they'd like to do this. And 10 years later, I'm happy to report that almost exactly half of America's TV weathercasters are doing exactly that. They have subscribed to our Climate Matters uh, reporting resources program. Um, they have, through their collective efforts, Reporting about climate change on local TV has increased. I don't, I, I don't actually have the current numbers, but let's just say 60 fold over the past seven years. So, and in doing so, they really have changed the job of TV weathercaster. The job used to be entirely doing the weather forecast. And now the job is doing the weather forecast and trying to place the changes in our weather and in other related conditions in our communities in context as a result of the changing global climate. Ed, going back to some original research, you, along with Yale University, came up with a piece of research called the Six Americas, the measurement of attitudes about climate change from the skeptic to the alarmed, in essence. Though many people said they were interested or had some concern about climate change, they saw it as a far-off problem that wouldn't affect them directly. Is there evidence that the Climate Matters in the Newsroom program has had any effect on changing that original data. Yeah, so that was the underlying rationale for, for exploring the potential of TV weathercasters as local climate educators. Um, specifically, back then, let's just say 20, 2010, um, the average American accepted the reality of climate change. It's just that they saw it as a distant threat. Distant in space, meaning not my community, maybe not my country, 
um, distant in time, not 2010, you know, maybe 2050, certainly 2100, we'd start to see problems due to climate change. And, and, distant in species. So plants, penguins, and polar bears, sure, they're being, um, they are likely to be harmed by climate change, but not so much people. And we intuited, based on that that survey data that I mentioned, we intuited that weather casters really had a unique, have a unique opportunity to reset public understanding of climate change as not a distant problem, or I should say, not only a distant problem, because it's true, people, people elsewhere, um, people in the future, uh, polar bears, they are, they are all being hurt or will all be hurt. Um, but, but we here across America, we're being hurt already. And we intuited that weather casters have a unique opportunity to tell that story and to show people more than just tell the story, but show people the ways in which the climate is changing in their community. And, you know, and possibly in ways that are creating some nice effects. It's always nice to have a lovely warm day in the middle of winter as a little respite. Um, but mostly the net impact of climate changes is pretty harmful in a variety of ways, including more extreme weather and uh, it's damaging to our infrastructure and our crops and our livestock. And as a public health professional, my main concern is it's, it's harmful to our health. So, we thought we felt quite confident that if weather casters would start to tell this story, it would help reset public understanding of climate change as a here now us problem. And that is exactly what has happened. Not only has uh, have Americans undergone this tremendous awakening to the realities of climate change over the past five or six years, but we we've actually published data to show that Climate reporting by weather casters has played a role in that. We've shown that in, in the 210 media markets across America, in media markets where the weather casters have done more climate reporting, public understanding of climate change as a here now us problem is increasing more rapidly. Ed, during the third national climate assessment, you co-chaired the engagement and communications working group and the NCA3 was pathbreaking in including the voices of local observers and including observational ground truthing in a national climate science report. Can you say something about how important it is, given what you've said about weather casters educating people about their local experience, but how important it is for the planetary science to have roots in understanding local impacts? Such a good point, Joe. And I probably won't do justice to, to the depth of the question you just put to me, but I'll, but I'll tell you what we were thinking in terms of building a constituency for climate science and for a national climate assessment, because the science, <laughs> the, the science was clear, but unless people and organizations and communities wanted to see the results of that science, the insights of that science applied for their well-being, the chances are it wouldn't be applied for their well-being. So rather than just approach the third national climate assessment as a scientific assessment enterprise, essentially to create knowledge and put it on the shelf um, to age gracefully or otherwise, we decided an equally important task to doing the scientific assessment was to build public engagement 
in the process and public demand for the findings of that assessment because we we really felt an obligation to do everything possible to make sure that we not only did the best possible assessment but that we really put in place the conditions whereby the insights of that assessment were most likely to be applied to to help communities across America deal with this growing and really quite profound threat. This year seems to be emerging as a more and more important theme, which is the connection between climate resilience and food security and human health, and even potentially the connection between those things and whether or not we risk uh, future pandemics like the one that has frozen the world for the last year. Can you say something about why people should think of climate change as related to the food they eat and the quality of their own health. Don and I were chatting just before the uh, the, the taping today, and uh, he essentially said, "You know, climate change is a story for every beat. <laughs> There's there is nothing that will not be affected by climate change, and that's exactly right." When we think people who accept the realities of climate change, but primarily see it as harming something else, things that they might be fond of, but that aren't them, not their people, not their children, not their friends and neighbors, it's pretty easy to defer thinking about the issue and asking yourself the question, well, what if anything should I be doing differently as a result of this threat? And what if anything should we here in my community be doing differently as a result of this threat? And the related question, what if anything should we in our nation be doing differently as a result of this threat? So helping people make the connection between the things that they care most about and how they are threatened by our changing global climate, it's a very helpful way to encourage them to get to that very important set of questions because they aren't going to ask those questions, what should we be doing differently than we've done in the past, unless they make the connection that climate change is threatening the things they care about. We all care about food. We we all care about it for deeply biological reasons and for deeply cultural reasons. And, and climate change is clearly threatening our food security. It's interesting, though. I actually find that just sort of my casual observation about the climate stories that get reported and the, and the climate angles that get discussed among people I know and people I observe, sometimes they talk more about the threat of climate change on culturally important foods more than nutritionally necessary foods, which I I think is such a a fascinating thing. But I, I do think it is deeply important for us to wrap our heads around the profound threat to our food supply, our nutritional supply, not only in our wealthy nation, but in all nations of the world. We can't, you know, if our lifeboat is shrinking while our seas are growing more dangerous, we really have an obligation to make sure that we're doing everything possible to ensure that we can expand that lifeboat, right? I'm I'm not sure my metaphor is working here, but go with me. The sooner we get started in that process, the more likely we are to be able to manage the threats of climate change and the impacts of climate change in a way to minimize the harm, the damage, the the, the carnage on on human civilization, human health and well-being. The most immediate passionate response I've ever seen to a climate presentation was a group of people who are all already in the know, but someone put on screen 
a time lapse of what could happen to the cocoa growing region of West Africa if climate change goes unchecked. And there was an audible gasp of horror because chocolate would go away. But you're talking about nutrition. You're talking about security, the, the possibility that not one fifth of a country, but half of a country could be regularly going hungry if the food system collapses. And you're saying if people have a better understanding of that, then maybe they'll demand policies that mitigate that threat. But what they're worried about is the cultural impact. Will I have the kind of food I like, not the kind of food I need to be alive? So this just takes me to another question, which is, does the research that you have done suggest that the public does not really understand the paradigm shift that is involved in dealing with climate change, that the clean energy isn't just new technology, that reducing emissions isn't just about not burning things. It's also about how we farm. That the paradigm shift part of it, that transformational change in our thinking and our the world around us is elusive to people or scary to people? Is that a barrier to communication? The impacts of climate change are not necessarily, and in fact, are almost certainly not going to be linear. In other words, we, we will hit phase shifts where what are currently serious but, but not catastrophic impacts could suddenly become catastrophic quite quickly. So think of an extreme weather event, right? The, the health impacts in any given community, the health impacts of climate change in any given community right now are measurable, but they are certainly well under what you would consider the, a catastrophic level. But if that community is hit by a serious climatic event, a superstorm uh, would be one example, suddenly the impact, the health impacts, the well-being impacts rise to truly the catastrophic level. And we assume they will go back eventually and not after the recovery phase, life will go back the way it was. But that's not really a good assumption. My understanding of the climate science is that we, you know, when you hit a phase shift, a tipping point, as some climate scientists say, we're not going back to the way it was. So we shouldn't be assuming the impacts accruing on a linear basis. We've got to be prepared for them to, to change suddenly and, and dramatically. When you enlisted meteorologists and journalists to tell the story of climate change, I have a question. How is it done without seeming to become advocacy journalists, partisans, liberals, if you will? How do you thread the needle so that a part of the denying public doesn't begin to distrust that trusted voice? Don, you are so much more qualified than I to answer that question. But since you ask it, I'll, I'll give a crack. <laughs> um, the, as I understand journalism as practiced in America, which by the way, as you know, is practiced different in different countries around the world. Um, not all journalists are, are necessarily, uh, brought up in the same school of thought as to what constitutes um, responsible journalism. But here in the U.S., responsible journalists report the facts and they report um, how different constituencies are responding to those facts. So one can't credibly call yourself a reporter if, in fact, you're giving credence to, to perspectives, to facts that have been debunked, that has to be made clear. If, if the facts have been debunked, that should be stated very clearly. Let me go to, let me actually come back and 
tie in Joe's prior question because I didn't quite get around to answering it. And that is after we understand, after we have presented or after journalists have presented what is factually the case, now we have where politics comes in. And this is where people's values and opinions come in. What do we want to answer the question? What do we want to do about it? There is no hard and fast answer to what the best option is or options are. We have a set of options that are currently available to us. If we invest in more research, more R and technology R&D, we might have a better set of options in the future. That's always a hope. That's a, a, his history would suggest that's a very real possibility. But those, you know, that means, okay, let's invest do more R&D to, to get better solutions, but we have a set of solutions available to us now. And it's political process and, and really the very human process of using our values to decide which of those options do we want to put in place, move forward with now in our community, in our state, in our country, and maybe even through global cooperation. Wouldn't it be fabulous if, if the U.S. and China and India created a trilateral pact where we decided, look, we're going to, we are, we are the market making countries because of our sheer size, the sheer size of our economies and our population. We're going to go ahead and drive the cost of clean energy down at an even more breathtakingly dramatic pace than has been the case over the past several decades. That could be a real game changer. And so is that a paradigm shift that Joe asked about? I, I would say it is. Does it require that we lead less comfortable, less healthy, less fulfilling lives as a result? I would contend it's just the opposite. I actually believe that the most promising climate solutions will not force us to live less comfortable, less fulfilling, less healthy lives, they will enable us to live more comfortable, more fulfilling, more healthful lives. And it's that misperception, the very common misperception that has been planted by the the vested economic interest that like it the way it is, that like the status quo of a carbon-driven economy, that have convinced us, misled us into believing that climate solutions will essentially have us living in the Stone Age again. And nothing could be further from the truth. And this, this problem of the misperception that has been planted seems like maybe one of the most important pieces of this conversation. You know, inside of our work at Geoversive, we've talked about the idea that you can't make a world with untruth. The world is made truth by truth. Every part of it is something factual and real. It seems important that the forces of disinformation are essentially defending a status quo in which the natural world is coming apart and the health and resilience of people is at risk. And yet, as you say, the paradigm shift that we are emerging into could be, if we do everything right, one where we have climate solutions and our lives are better. We're healthier. Our societies are more inclusive and resilient, and we have lower likelihood of catastrophic impacts. But that piece of the puzzle, the fact that the disinformation convinces people when in reality, we all have that experience that the world is made truth by truth. What can we do to make the truth the thing people want to receive more, the thing that they are more excited about instead of the juicy or scary 
false narrative. Climate doesn't care what we believe. The climate doesn't care if we're a Democrat or a Republican. In the end, our, you know, the consequences of our changing climate are going to punish us all. And that's, that's not a particularly happy um, reality, a happy, not a particularly happy truth, but it is the truth. And eventually the truth wins out. In this case, we want to make sure the truth wins out soon enough that we still have enough running room to, to change societies and, and our economies for the better. I like, as a communication scientist, for the past four decades, I've really only learned one thing. <laughs> I, you'd like to think I know a lot, but the more I learn, the more I realize I've only learned one thing. But I, I'm absolutely convinced it is true, and that is that every information campaign, every public information campaign in human history that has ever succeeded has done so because it features simple, clear messages that are repeated often by a variety of trusted voices. And the reason why that is true, there's many, many reasons why it is true. I like to call those the the 11 most evidence-based words about communication science that have ever been uttered. Um, there's a lot of science that I could bring to, to explain why it is true, but the important point for today's conversation is it is true. And whether or not you are you, whether or not your simple, clear messages are factually correct or factually incorrect, whether or not you are knowingly lying or desperate, trying your desperate best to tell the truth doesn't really matter because the impact is the same. Simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted voices have a profound impact. It is ironic and it is unfortunate that climate change became a victim of the culture wars in America. It didn't have to be so. You know, some, some issues are intractably and inextricably, you know, linked, tied up in the culture war. I would say abortion is one of them. Um, but it didn't have to be the case that climate change got caught up in, in the culture wars, but it is. And we have to work doubly hard to counteract the simple, clear messages that are repeated often by a variety of trusted voices on the wrong side of truth if we're going to help truth win out soon enough that it will really help us you know save human civilization a, a terrible fate ed thank you a million for being a part of our podcast today and i wish we had two hours to talk to you thank you don thank you joe it's thank been you, a pleasure been great dr edward mayback he is the uh, representative and the principal for the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University. And I thank you all for joining us today. I hope we talk to you next week. If you want more, go to earthintel.org. If you want a deeper dive, go to geoversive.net. It's been our pleasure being with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Talk to you soon.